Well, this morning we, uh, we pick back up as we are uh, wrapping up our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And our reading this, uh, this morning is Matthew 26, 17 through 29. The text is also printed for you right below the song we just sang. Uh, let's, let's give our uh, careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. This is one of the most famous scenes in all of the Bible, isn't it? We know this one. The Last Supper of Jesus and his disciples. The last week of Jesus' life is ordinarily called Holy Week. That begins on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds sing out their hosannas. But this scene, this scene of Jesus around the table with his disciples, this marks the end, doesn't it? And just 24 hours from this table, Jesus' body will be lifeless in a tomb. It's a famous scene. It's famous in art. I'm guessing that most of us of a particular age at least can, can uh, picture in our heads Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper where this figure of Jesus uh, sits in the middle of a long table flanked on either side by his disciples, everyone awkwardly on the same side of the table. We know even in that culture, it was very unlikely that they all sat on the same side of the table. But if Leonardo's painting doesn't come to mind, what comes to mind when you read this passage in all of its simplicity? Because it is simple, isn't it? Maybe it's all of the division and confusion and chaos of how churches try to observe this same meal all across the world. I mean, even represented in this room, we all come from different places. Many of us come from churches where the Lord's Supper was never really observed. For some, it was occasional, and maybe it was a kind of time to slow down and to confess your sins and to think of the cross. It was to remember Jesus' work for you in a particularly intentional way. For others of you, you came from church traditions where that was the whole point. It was like, get past the 15-minute lesson and get to the bread and wine. The Lord's Supper is vital for what we do here at CPC. Just about every week, with the exception of just a couple of Sundays in the entire history of this church, have we not observed the Lord's Supper together. 
when we were all on stay-at-home orders in spring of 2020, this was uh, the, what so many of us yearned for, was to come back to the table, something that felt so missing in our lives. Now, I'm saying all of this to emphasize, okay, so the Lord's Supper, I think most of us would say is important. But maybe it's hard to explain why it's important. Maybe it's hard to see what this scene, in its simplicity, has to do with what we do week in and week out. Now, in the few verses we're looking at today, we don't get this fully developed theology of the Lord's Supper, do we? We, we don't get the whole big picture of everything that we do in the Supper. Uh, not every question about the Supper is answered in our passage, but I would go on a limb and say, I think the most important questions about redemption and salvation that Jesus is about to procure, that Jesus is about to accomplish, those questions are answered here, and they're displayed for us in the bread and wine. The Lord's Supper, even seen here in the Last Supper, is a visual, tangible display of the gospel. And so my goal this morning is really to walk away with three graspable, hopefully memorable realities that this table brings before our eyes week after week. I I hope that we can answer with a little more clarity after today what this table means for us, why we do what we do, because it's all here, even in Matthew 26. And so those three graspable, hopefully memorable aspects of the meal that we'll look at are the following. Three points. It's a meal of promises. God is a promise-making God, and this is a meal that, that, that reinforces those promises to us. Secondly, it's a meal of forgiveness. That may be the main point, is that in this meal displayed for us, our sins are forgiven. And then thirdly, it's a meal of triumph. It's a meal of joy. It's a meal of victory. It's a meal that anticipates Jesus' victory over sin and death, and we celebrate that victory every Sunday. It's a meal of promise, it's a meal of forgiveness, and then it's a meal of triumph. All right, so first of all, we have a meal of promise. It's a meal of promise-making and promise-keeping. That's my way of translating Jesus' word covenant. Jesus says, my blood is poured out for this new covenant reality He calls the cup the blood of the covenant. Well, what does covenant mean? What's the idea of a covenant? Basically, it's it's promise with muscle. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise with muscle. If I promise my buddy I'm going to pick him up at 5 p.m. at the airport and I just don't go, uh, what, what are my consequences of not doing that? It's just disappointment, right? If I keep acting that way, that friendship probably won't last too much longer. My reputation will be harmed. But while I have broken a promise, you could say my consequences aren't, aren't very real. They're not very uh, 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 severe. If I promise to, uh, to serve my country in the military and I take an oath and decide that some weekend I'm just going to go wander off into town and, and I don't have permission to do so, The military has the muscle to give me consequences for breaking that promise. If I promise a judge in court that I will do something, he or she can hold me in contempt. They're all promises, whether it's my buddy or a judge, but only the judge has muscle. Well, that's what a covenant gets at. It's a promise with muscle. And Jesus is loading this meal that he has with his disciples with these promises. He's making a covenant through the giving of this meal. And crucially, he is doing the promise making and promise keeping. Jesus is directing this scene as he is directing all things. And Matthew is emphasizing in this whole passage, Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. Now where do we see his lordship? It's all in leading up to the meal. 
In the preface to the upper room in verse 17, it's Passover. Uh, This is the great feast day of Israel. This is the 4th of July and Thanksgiving combined and then put on steroids in the life of national Israel. Pilgrims flocking to the capital city to celebrate this great feast with one another, remembering God's creation of them as a people, remembering God's redemptive act in history. The problem is Jerusalem's packed out and there are no hotels at the time, so where are we going to stay? Well, Jesus says, no problem, go find so-and-so. Go find a certain man, and then everything will work out, and everything will fall into place. And tell him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Jesus is in control of the situation and time and events. In verse 20, they're reclining at table. It all worked out. They got the room, and they're all sitting around dinner. And then Jesus awkwardly kind of kills the mood, doesn't he? They're all eating, and he says, you know... Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then in verse 24, the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is the paradox of the passion. The paradox of the passion. Jesus, from our vantage point, looking at him with our eyes, Jesus seemingly has no power. He has no control. He is like a sheep led to the slaughter. He will be mistreated, abused, meat beaten, mocked, scorned, crucified. But he says, my time is at hand. As it is written, what I'm doing now is the work of fulfillment. So the point I'm making here, which I think is Matthew's underlying point, is that though he's veiled in human flesh, though Jesus is hidden in weakness, the one who establishes the new covenant is the Lord. Jesus is in charge of the situation. He knows where the meal will be celebrated. He knows that he will be betrayed. He knows that there is a meal to celebrate unlike any other Passover dinner happening in Jerusalem that night. Jesus' meal will establish a one-sided covenant with his people that will revolve forever around his broken body and his shed blood. So beginning in verse 26, which is the supper, Jesus takes bread He blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, and he says, take and eat. It is Jesus who initiates, blesses, breaks, and gives of himself in the supper. It's not the disciples who serve Jesus, it's the other way around. That's such an obvious point, that's such a simple point. But maybe it's the most profound point you will hear this morning. Jesus is the one who serves. Jesus is the host. Jesus is the one at work. And he's at work making promises to us and sealing them, confirming them through this meal. All right, so Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. That, hopefully that's fair enough. But Jesus is also the pledge of the covenant. Uh, in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament world, uh, covenants were sealed with the death of an animal. They were ratified with the death of an animal. In fact, in Hebrew, the phrase to make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. So the death of the animal was the pledge of the binding nature of the promises being made. And so all over the ancient world, even in neighboring communities of Israel, there are examples where you have two parties who pledge themselves to one another. I make a promise to you, I will do this thing and I will serve you etc. And, and what they would do is they would, they would kill the animal and often they would dismember the animal and separate its parts. And those who are making these pledges to one another would then walk through the animal parts. Now what's that communicating? Well, it's saying, may uh, what happened to this animal happen to me if I go back on the promises in that covenant. 
and the world was flipped on its head with the events recorded in Genesis 15. God recommunicates his one-way covenant to Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. Your seed will be great. Nations will come from you. And Abraham is sedated, and God alone walks through the cut animal parts. So how can Abraham break that promise? He can't because he's not making the promise. God is making the promise, and of course, God does not break his promises. Now that's the background. So what's missing in our passage about this new covenant that Jesus is making? There's no animal. Jesus gives his own body, which will be broken. The only blood shed will be his own. What guarantee of the promises of God do we have? What is the pledge? How do I know that I belong to God? It's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Our problem is that we forget that we belong to God. Our problem is that so often, even as those who put our trust in Christ, we don't believe it. We don't live our lives out of that reality. And so what do we do? We come to the table. We come to the table to remember it. I love the language of the Heidelberg Catechism. is as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Jesus is the Lord of the covenant. He's the pledge of the covenant. Now what's the nature of this promise We've already alluded to it. What's the heart of the promise? It's life with God. It's I will be your God. You will be my people. It is God saying you belong to me and I belong to you. Prophet Jeremiah foretells of this new covenant uh, from God to his people in Jeremiah 31. When he says I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And so what establishes that we will have life with God? God does. And this meal communicates that we are a people formed and a people kept by the death of Jesus. What qualifies us to come into God's presence and to his table? He he qualifies us. We need to come often to this table in order to be given Christ. To be reminded that we are a people formed by him and kept by him. Okay, so it's a meal of promise. That's the first point. God commits himself. He promises himself. He covenants himself to his people. He will secure this pathway through his own broken body. And this pathway is found in the second benefit of the new covenant. Again, this is the the, the central benefit of this new covenant that God is, is making with his people. That is the forgiveness of sins. And this is a meal of forgiveness. To come to this table is to receive in your hands the confirmation that your sins are forgiven, that Christ has covered your sins with his blood and clothed you with his righteousness. What's fascinating is that even on this night of Jesus with his disciples, it's a meal of very specific forgiveness. Like the disciples know, even at this first gathering, what it means to come as those who are in need, those who come to be forgiven. Look at how the disciples respond to Jesus. Remember, he kills the mood, everyone's just enjoying themselves. And then verse 21 Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrowful. I think that's a, that's a weak translation because it's not that they're sad that Jesus says one of you will betray me. It's that they're shocked. They're aghast. They're troubled. They're, they, they have their anxiety induced. And they start, they start going to him, all of them, and they begin to say to him, is it I, Lord? 
the 11 disciples are filled with self-doubt. Now, I, I think we can read past that line maybe too fast, but I think their reaction to Jesus is really powerful. Because none of them got defensive and said, how dare you? Now, Peter, in just a few verses, will, will, will stress his allegiance to Jesus when Jesus says that you will, you will deny me. Uh, but at this point, none of them are defensive. None of them point the finger and say, it's probably Judas. They are all aware that they are capable of sinning against their Lord. Because they all ask him, is it me? They are all aware that they are capable of sinning against their Lord. And to have this self-awareness, I think, makes them open to receiving Jesus. Judas, who sits next to Jesus in the place of honor, I mean, Jesus just keeps showering the love on Judas. He comes in his pride. The 11 other disciples come to the table with nothing, except even self-doubt. They are hours away, all of them at some point, and in some way will, will fail the Lord Jesus, and yet that's the point of all of this. Jesus will go to the cross for them because of how much he loves them. He does not go to the cross for those with the most strong, courageous, and resilient faith. He goes to the cross for those who know their sin and who know his saving love for them. And it's the same for you and me. Forgiveness is a central blessing of the new covenant that Jesus institutes. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, this is the centerpiece. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What does the Lord's Supper communicate? Even at the Last Supper, it's all about the forgiveness of sins. What is the Lord's Supper but the confirmation, the exclamation point, the big, bold, all-caps reality that we hold in our hands that my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ? In verse 27, he takes the cup and he gives thanks and he says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the meal that visually and tangibly conveys the gospel announcement that in Jesus Christ our sins have been dealt with at the cross. This meal is central because it communicates right before our eyes the heart of salvation. God is perfectly holy and righteous and just, and we are all naturally, we come into this world naturally bent towards sin and destruction and are fully deserving of judgment, but God took our guilt and our shame, and our sin to himself. And he says, come, taste and see. Drink it all. And so we either eat and drink the judgment that Jesus underwent, or maybe to, to riff on Paul's warning, if we don't do that, what do we do? We eat and drink judgment to ourselves. It's a meal of forgiveness because Jesus is saying, eat this and drink it to know that I will stand in your place. And to us, eat and drink this because I have stood in your place. The language here is language of substitution. His blood is poured out for many. The meal pledges that Jesus will stand in for his people. Uh, this is the meal that preaches forgiveness because it preaches the one who stood in our place. And this language of substitution uh, should take us back to Isaiah 53, which is the background here. Because Isaiah 53 is God's provision of a substitute for us. I love the book of Isaiah. It's called the, uh, since the early church, it was always called the gospel of the Old Testament. And there is a drama to its structure. 
You have the first 39 chapters of, uh, chapters of Isaiah, which are basically chapters of judgment. There's some beautiful, gracious sprinkling throughout. But for the most part, it's God saying, yeah, you know the nations, uh, they're awful and deserving of judgment. And Israel, you're no better. You too are in deserving of judgment. And then in chapter 40, God intrudes. He intervenes with grace. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to her because her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned because God intervenes with his strong arm. But there's a question that should arise. That's great that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, but but what will keep Israel from just going back to where she once was? Um, how, How will she not just go back into her old habits? God provides a servant for Israel. God provides a servant, not a coach, not a mentor, not a model, not a teacher, not an inspirational figure. Jesus, to some degree, is all of those things, but here he is a servant. One who will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One who will be, who will be despised, one who, if we were to see him, we would think nothing of him and give him no time of day. But surely that's the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Come to the table and see God's love for you. Come to the table and taste and see the Lord is good and that your sins are forgiven because Jesus is the servant who stood in your place. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. This is a meal of promise, it's a meal of forgiveness, and finally, it's a meal of triumph. Now, Jesus, of course, chose the Passover meal to institute this new covenant meal. This is not the new Passover meal. Jesus did not get rid of the Passover meal, but he chose Passover as the background, the backdrop to this meal. Because Jesus, of course, is the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Remember, Passover tells the story of how God delivered his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. This is the tenth plague that God gives to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would relent and let the people go. It's the death of the firstborn. So the angel of death passes over all of Egypt and all of the firstborn die unless the blood of the sacrificial lamb was painted on the doorposts and then the angel would pass over. This was the celebration of the creation of the nation of Israel. This is the great act of redemption and salvation in Israel's history. And Jesus is in the midst of this enacting a better salvation story. So the Passover celebration, as they're sitting around the table, it's going to look back to the deliverance that God provided to his people in Egypt. It will give them present strength because God is still their redeemer and deliverer and savior. And it will look forward because God doesn't just rescue them from Egypt, but he provides them with the promised land. And Jesus is communicating something greater than even the Passover is here. Because in this meal, we look back to Jesus' work on the cross. It provides nourishment to you and I, pilgrims on the way, and this meal directs our hearts and minds into the future. It's a foretaste of the great heavenly banquet. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
From the beginning, this is a meal that communicates great joy and hope. Jesus' journey to the cross is not a journey to defeat, but a, but, but a victory, triumph. His broken body and shed blood, that's not the end of the story. Jesus passed through death and he came out the other side. He overcame death in rising from the dead. And so when we eat and when we drink, we participate in his glorious triumph over sin and death. This meal tells a story of triumph because the body of Jesus broken reigns now. And so this can't just be about remembering but also anticipation of looking forward. This meal isn't merely about remembering the darkness and grief of the cross. It's communing with the risen Lord Jesus, anticipating the day that we will eat and drink in his presence. This simple meal of bread and wine tells a story of a greater feast. So in Revelation 19, John hears the singing, a great multitude, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. God in his grace satisfies souls with his supper, but he doesn't satisfy stomachs. He whets our appetites for something greater. He feeds us a meal that only increases our anticipation of the satisfaction our hearts were created for. Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I'm with you and you are with me in my Father's kingdom. What, a, what an image. We're all looking for joy. We're all looking for satisfaction. That's one of those sentences that gives us such a beautiful portal to where joy is found, to feast with Jesus and his Father's kingdom. This is a meal of deep and lasting joy. For the anxious and for the worried, and there's some of you who are that this morning, this is a meal that still communicates that Jesus reigns. For those who are beset by sin, for those who come in here with guilt and shame, who are struggling in their sin and who want freedom from their sin, this meal communicates to you, you are no longer in bondage to that sin. You are no longer slaves but sons. You are no longer slaves but daughters. For those dissatisfied and discontent, isn't this a meal uh, which is a reminder that, that, yeah, yeah, you were never created to find that joy and lasting peace in the things of this world. But a day is coming. And a kingdom is coming. And a feast is coming. Set your heart on that. Every time that you come forward and you hold in your hands the bread and the wine, I'd like you to remember that that is an act of protest. That is an act of protest. Because Christ and his promise-making love and his promise-keeping love is the most meaningful, lasting thing in my life. And everything else, everything that we get distracted by, everything that we give our hearts to and our attention to and look to to provide us stability and meaning, those are all fading away. And this meal that looks so inconsequential is all that lasts. Because it points us to that day where we'll feast with Christ in the kingdom of his Father. The companionship of Jesus with his disciples, that will soon uh, be broken by death, and yet he will be restored in the Father's kingdom. This is no last meal on death row for Jesus. This is no strictly somber affair. It's a meal of joy and triumph. 
It's a meal of joyful anticipation of new life through the death and the resurrection of Christ. He does not go from here as an example to those who need a model of faithfulness and courage and self-giving love. He goes as a champion. And he achieves the victory. There is no love like this. There is no forgiveness like this. There is no promise-keeping one like this. Come to the table. Receive Christ for you. Let us pray. Our most holy and wonderful God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Triune God, who works all things for your good and for your glory, and out of your abundant love, you wrap us up into that love story. Through the sending of Jesus the Son, out of this shared love, This love enacted by the Holy Spirit to to unite us to Jesus. To use this meal of just a simple element of bread and of wine, just simple earthly things. And yet by this heavenly presence, by the Spirit, Lord, you create faith. You make Jesus so real to us. You make these realities uh, centered in our hearts, and Lord, that's what we need you to do. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our champion, the one who sat uh, around a table of of those who so easily could, could fall off the wagon, and yet he offers his body and his blood. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you're our champion too, that you've achieved the victory Uh, that we need and that we long for. Holy Spirit, would you seal this word into our hearts? Would you seal those promises to us that we would know that we belong to you, you belong to us, that our sins are forgiven? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.